Welcome to the Economics Explained podcast. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. My guest today is Craig Lawrence, Managing Director of Litton Advisory, an economic consulting firm based in Brisbane, Australia. Craig has had three decades of experience as a professional economist, working in Australian, federal and state government agencies and in the private sector. He has worked internationally, has provided economic advice in PNG, the Solomon Islands and the Middle East. He has extensive experience in providing advice on the economics of infrastructure, which is the topic of today's conversation. This is an important topic in my view, due to the huge sums of money involved. For example, Brisbane's Cross River Rail subway system, currently under construction, is projected to cost $7 billion to build. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Craig. Craig, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Gene. It's a pleasure to be here. Could we just begin by considering what exactly is infrastructure? What are the different types of infrastructure? What's in and what's out? That's a great question, Gene. And um, it's true that Australians and uh, around the world were talking a lot more about infrastructure than we have in the past. And you can tell when an issue gets into the public domain um, when it, it starts to get a bit of satire, like on Utopia, where you have mm. a whole program that's around infrastructure. Look, one way to look at, at, at this is to see it as um, the, the fundamental facilities or services that support an economy, a city or a, an, an area uh, in, a, in a country or a region. These are, are foundation services um, and facilities that help the other parts of the economy function. And um, a lot of people think of, when they hear the word infrastructure, they think immediately of roads and bridges and railways. People might think of water supply, sewage systems, electrical grids. Um, increasingly, uh, telecommunications assets, things like broadband cables. And these are the physical components of um, often a network of assets that provide broad services that are generally accessible to the, to the public. And there's really two, two ways to look at infrastructure. You could look at hard infrastructure, which is the physical networks, you know, to support industrial activity and uh, the provision of services increasingly. And then you can look at soft uh, infrastructure, which is often called related to um, social infrastructure, things like uh, the provision of uh, health and cultural services. There are often uh, buildings or structures that um, are purpose-built for that as well. Um, so you can see it's got a quite a wide uh, remit, but at its heart, it's a physical asset that's actually providing a set of services. And it's a relatively new concept uh, mm. in that it's only been around since about the 1870s and its its original meaning was around installations that form the basis for the operation of any any system and it 
it sort of comes from the Latin word infra, meaning below, ah. and structure. Uh, so the original concept of infrastructure was tunnels, water, gas systems, things like that. Uh, but um, after um, uh, more widespread use uh, in uh, in the United States and uh, by urban planners, it sort of come to its more settled definition today. Mm. Oh, that's a good answer, Craig. And it's good you mentioned the the 19th century, you said back to the 1870s or so. And I mean, you, you think back to the, it was in that Victorian era when we really started to realise the benefits of uh, of infrastructure, such as, well, you had Bazalgette with his schemes, the uh, the embankment. Uh, you had uh, in, in on the Thames in London, the, the sewerage system there that they installed, the underground underground railway, various different projects. And it was from that time that we, I suppose, we did develop that appreciation of infrastructure. That's right. And um, it's something that um, it touches everybody's lives on a daily basis. Um, and it's mm. something that the general public actually, uh, particularly in developed countries, uh, takes for granted. Now, you could imagine if you didn't have reasonably reliable power supply, uh, reasonably or clean uh, water supplies and uh, good telecommunications and internet, you know, you'd wonder whether it would be possible to actually sustain uh, cities that are of the size and populations that we've got now. Mm, absolutely. So it's important for both a functioning economy and a functioning society. I think the other thing that's interesting about it, which is not really picked up a lot in the in the literature, is that the investment that's needed is often bigger than any one individual can properly sustain. Mm. So it is possible for individuals to generate their own electricity, generate their own clean water supply, you know, generate their own connection into the, the internet. But um, a lot of these infrastructure assets lend themselves to economies of scale which allow you to really lower the cost of the, the service that's being provided to people. Um, at the same time, we're finding that um, the scale of these investments are getting so large that the involvement of uh, governments is needed. Uh, yes. And also, increasingly, uh, governments uh, don't have the balance sheet to fund all the infrastructure that's needed to maintain the standards of living that we've got mm. now, even with a modest population growth. Absolutely. And, that, and that, that kind of leads us into that question about having to make choices mm. about, about infrastructure. You know, do we build more roads? Do we build, um, build out the uh, power system? Do we push for greater security of water supply? All mm. of these things are inside a, a budget constraint. They're either inside the constraint of financial markets to finance them or they're inside the constraint of governments and governments' ability to raise taxes to pay for the infrastructure. Yes. So there's a, there's a real need for a decision tool to help sort that out. Yes, which uh, leads on to my next question. Uh, what about uh, cost-benefit analysis? We hear a bit about the importance of cost-benefit analysis and whether a particular project has the right benefit 
cost ratio or what's the or what its project yield or internal rate of return is could you explain what uh, cost benefit analysis is in the context of infrastructure please craig yeah sure a cost benefit analysis is simply an attempt to enumerate what are the costs of doing an infrastructure project uh, and operating it and providing the services from it uh, to uh, society and, and to users. Um, and then what benefits accrue to users and to the wider society as a result of that, that project. And the, the one aspect about infrastructure is that the assets often have very long lives. So there's a, period, a long period of time over which you need to do the analysis. And that means that you have to make very big capital investments up front uh, to pull a small stream of benefits off into the future. You know, some water infrastructure lasts 60 or 100 years. And, you know, in year 99, it's still providing that service. One of the things in cost-benefit analysis is that it integrates <coughs> hard-dollar budget values to do the project with broader economic and social values. It, it provides a decision rule that supports determining a threshold for whether a project can, can actually run. And more broadly, it allows you, when you've got similar projects uh, in, say, a portfolio of assets, you can begin to compare and rank those projects. And then within a project itself, you can actually compare and rank the options that might be, <laughs> might be available for, for it. So the, the prime technique that's used in there is uh, a discounted cash flow analysis. Mm. And what that does is it basically recognises uh, the opportunity cost, the social opportunity cost of committing a, a resources for what is an investment to obtain future consumption of services in, into the future. So we often hear a lot about uh, discount rates uh, which is measuring that uh, social opportunity cost over time. And uh, we also hear a lot about an internal rate of return. And what that is, is that that's the, the rate of return or the, the discount, if you like, that shows you the, the threshold where the present value of the benefits going out into, say, 60 or 100 years is equal to the present value of the cost of the, the project. So if you can get a return that's above that internal rate of return, then uh, you've got, um, or it's, it's greater than zero, you've got a viable project. It's also important to note that there are economic and financial uh, cost-benefit analyses. So mm. one approach, and this is where there is a lot of potential confusion, in that when we look at an economic um, approach, what we're looking at is the return to the economy overall. Mm. Um, but when we look at a financial cost-benefit analysis, we've got to be very careful about identifying the costs and benefits that accrue to the entity that's doing the project. Um, in the economic sense, what you're looking at is what are the costs that are imposed on the economy uh, and what are the benefits that accrue to the economy as a, a whole entity or to society at large and that society at large includes both the financiers it includes the 
the users, and it also includes the externalities or the benefits that might uh, be accrued at third parties or even uh, negative externalities, costs that might be imposed on third parties as a result of um, uh, doing an infrastructure project. Craig, I think that's a really good point. Could we just uh, talk about Cross River Rail in that context? So that's uh, that an infrastructure project that's going ahead here in Brisbane where both uh, Craig and I are and it's an underground subway system so our first uh, underground metro system here in uh, in Queensland and it's going to be an expensive project so we're talking about capital costs of uh, around 7 billion it's estimated at the moment and this is something that has been subject to a cost benefit analysis and I think Craig this is an example where you need to look at more than the financial returns. Is that correct? Am I correct in that? Yeah, I, I think um, if you're just looking at fare box revenues, mm. uh, in other words, the, the revenues of, that are contributed by the users who will use the, the asset and the services provided by it, you won't get the full story of the, the benefit. A lot of public transport infrastructure is... Um, uh, subsidised in operation and also sometimes in the uh, capital costs as well. And the reason for that is that the benefits that accrue from doing those these projects don't all fall just on the, on the commuters. If all the benefits fell on the commuters, then you could actually charge uh, fares that would enable you to fully recover the cost of the provision of the service and the, uh, and also the underlying asset as well. But businesses benefit from agglomeration of um, workforce effects. In, mm. in other words, being able to have a greater catchment area by improved transport times means that you get a more competitive labour market happening, which is a you know a, a productivity benefit from public transport. And then you also get um, some environmental benefits um, because your carbon emissions for the transport task are lower on a public transport basis than they are for private motor vehicle use on, on a per capita basis. There are a range of benefits. Uh, the other thing that we've seen, for example, is we've seen uplifts in property values uh, mm. along public transport routes that don't necessarily occur, accrue to uh, in full to individual commuters, but you know that um, turn up for people that have residences along along the public transport route, and similarly businesses as well, along um, you know train lines, bus lines, um, tend to perform a little bit better than where there there isn't a lot of public transport. The other uh, benefits around that are issues of uh, public policy around social inclusion, being able to subsidise the movement of people who are maybe not necessarily in the workforce or don't have access to other forms of transport, you know, in order to, you know, help make our communities more, more sort of cohesive. So a lot of those things don't turn up in the fare box revenues. That's why uh, a wider economic analysis seeks to identify those, enumerate them, 
uh, and compare those benefits against the direct hard dollar costs of the infrastructure project. Good points, Craig. I just want to pick up on two things uh, that came to mind then. Uh, One was congestion. Uh, You mentioned agglomeration economies, which, yep, that's a good point. That's part of those wider economic benefits. What about this? uh, They often say that, well, if we have this project, it's going to reduce congestion in the whole transport system. And we know that congestion has this huge cost, you know, billions of dollars each year. Is that, is that one of the economic benefits, reducing congestion? Yeah, it's a, a huge externality uh, that's always been there in urban um, transport systems mm. and primarily in road infrastructure and road networks within urban areas. And the reason for that is that when I get in my car and uh, I merge onto a main road, I just sort of nudge the people coming after me back a few seconds in the in the traffic. Mm. So I impose a tiny uh, uh, travel penalty, time travel penalty on them. But you can imagine with hundreds of thousands of cars streaming into mm. a, a, like a radial network of roads in an urban area, that adds up very quickly into um, minutes and hours of traffic delay. And when there's no pricing on the road infrastructure, motorists don't get a, a price signal about their behaviour. Uh, so they, and also they don't perceive the negative cost that they're imposing on other motorists as, as roads get more, more congested. And uh, that travel time penalty is becoming enormous and significant in a lot of our capital cities. And mm. One way is to provide a supply-side response, which is to put more road infrastructure in place. And uh, our political economy kind of encourages that. Yes. Uh, The other other way is to actually look for a price response, uh, like uh, congestion pricing. And uh, that's much more difficult in a political economy sense to, you know, to introduce. Yes, exactly. The other point I wanted to, to talk about and it occurred to me when you were speaking about the value uplift in the properties uh, along transport, new transport routes, for example. We often, well, we're increasingly hearing about value capture. Is that something that we should be thinking about with, uh, with public transport projects? And could you just explain what value capture is? When people talk about value capture, it's about trying to internalise an external benefit and bring it in as a possible revenue stream Mm. for the project. And um, in effect, some approaches to value capture are simply a tax, you know, a a geographic area tax around an infrastructure asset. So the thinking and the design of it has to be very carefully done. And it's often very hard to estimate what that value uh, is and then and then to actually apply an appropriate uh, instrument on it uh, in order to be able to uh, capture it and uh, monetize it and put it into the cash flows of the project. Um, often that's done where the user revenues are not sufficient to provide the kind of financial compensation the private sector is seeking 
when it's involved in the project. You know, from a government perspective, the government has broad taxation powers and uh, has the ability to levy, you know, taxes across the whole of the state. So um, introducing, you know, a, a tax that's just got a geographic focus presents a lot of challenges, a lot of legislative challenges to our governments in being able to do it. Yeah, I think that's a good point. So I mean, I was just, I'm just thinking of the Cross River Rail project here in Brisbane. And I mean, one of the main beneficiaries of it could end up being Brisbane City Council if uh, you know, this does raise the value of uh, properties uh, in uh, inner city Brisbane and then they get the benefit through higher rates revenue. So they may end up being a significant beneficiary of the project, but the state government's the one that's paying for it. Uh, and yeah, this is where you get, um, because of the uh, structure of our system of government, mm. uh, you get um, different transfers of uh, payments depending upon how the governments uh, operate and the legislative frameworks around who's responsible for what. Um, and also the differences in the taxing powers that, local government has versus state government versus uh, federal government as well. We've reached the end of part one of the uh, two-part podcast with uh, Craig Lawrence, Managing Director of Lytton Advisory. I hope you can join us next time where Craig and I will talk about public-private partnerships, among other issues to do with uh, infrastructure. Thanks for joining us.